Jesus at a Pharisee's house one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling on his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guest picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And um, one I pray, and then we'll get into this uh, really fascinating passage. Heavenly Father, we pray, quite simply today, that we can, by your Spirit, truly examine our own hearts and realign them back to you and what your Son has done for us. Amen. Now, it seems to me humans are designed to be in relationships. That's not the most uh, profound thing I've ever said, but it's kind of obvious. We like relationships. We like being close to one another. We are often captivated by what other humans are doing, whether that's in our close, intimate relationships or even celebrities or uh, friends, whatever it is, we are often captivated by what other humans do. Sometimes, though, we are captivated by our things. And this happened to me this week, where I got a little bit too captivated 
by a certain thing. On Monday night, we had our leadership team meeting, and that's not unusual. And at the end of the meeting, it's not unusual to leave. But unfortunately, I left my phone inside, and I thought, oh, there's a message coming, I need to grab that message. And so I grabbed my phone, I picked it up, and I pulled it out, and I'm walking, and and I was so captivated by my phone, I smashed my head into the wire door, and there's still, I think, a little bit of my skin on the Adams's door to this moment. And so you don't all have to ask me now what's wrong with my nose, because I'm an idiot, and that's what I did. And it hurt a lot. I smashed my face really hard into the door. I thought, oh, I'd be all right. It's really embarrassing. Just get in the car and go home. But I got in the car and blood was all over my face. So I had to go back inside. And I really appreciate that uh, people don't bring it up. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the next day at Bible study at the Adams, what was the passage? The narrow door. <laughs> but we can be captivated by our things and even relationships. In that moment of being captivated by my phone, there was a dire consequence. But today, we're going to see that God wants us to be captivated by Him. That He wants us to be captivated, that our hearts should be solely focused on Him. In the outlines, there's no outline today, there's a blank page there for you, but if you like writing things down, the big point that you can write down that for you to reflect upon is, God is not after your performance, He is after your heart. That is what we see in this passage today. And a little bit later on, as we finish and we do a bit of reflection on ourselves, um, I'll ask you four questions, and you may like to write those questions down um, when we get to them as well, if that's helpful for you. So what we're going to do, we're going to pull this passage apart and see how it plays out. And as we've heard it read and explained, Jesus is hanging out at a dinner party of the elite. And as this party plays out, we'll see how the heart should be oriented. And then what we'll do in response to that, we'll do a bit of a heart self-check, a reflection on what our hearts are like and how they align with God's call on your life. And so I'd love you today to consider why Jesus makes such a radical call for your heart. Even if it's something you've never done before and you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to do that, I'm, I'm not going to consider Jesus that intently, I'm here at least. Just go along, if, if you can, go along for the ride and see why Jesus is so full on about it. And maybe consider that with us. So as we get into the passage, we see the setting is, this, as I've said, this dinner party with the elite but there's a trap that is sprung. Have a look with me. You've got Bibles open in front. Uh, verse 1, on, on one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in a house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. I think it's always funny. Right? I think it's very funny when you try and spring a trap on Jesus. And if you've read the Gospels, and if you haven't, go and read it as a story, read it through, and you'll see... Pharisees and all sorts of other people trying to trick Jesus all the time. And I think that's just really funny that you think they're trying to trap someone who's the creator of all things, as Colossians says, who is God himself. How is your tricky words going to trap him? I think it's quite bizarre. But that's what they try and do. And so they, they set a trap with a man who's got abnormal swelling, a sick man who would be considered an outcast, and they're trying to trap him. 
How? Because it's the Sabbath. And so they're like, okay, we've got him. Because what we'll do is, we'll kind of usher this man. And so when he's here, we're watching him carefully. We'll kind of push him there. Here he is. What are you going to do with this, Jesus? Because what are his options? He can either say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to heal this man because I'm full of compassion. But then we've got him because he's broken the law. And he's busted. And then if he doesn't, because, you know, I've got to keep the law, I've got to keep the law. We've got him because he's claiming to be from God and he's got no compassion and mercy. And as if God's Messiah is going to be like that, he's trapped. They must have thought that was so clever. Thinking that these words are going to trap God himself. And Jesus just turns the trap on themselves with one simple question in verse 3. Can you see it there? Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Uh, another drop the microphone and walk out of the room moment by Jesus. As he just asked one question and they've got nowhere to go. Because now it's turned on them. No, you can't heal him. Well, then you guys have got no mercy or compassion. Yes, you should. You're breaking your own rules. And then in brilliant defiance, well, as we see there... These leaders are silent. You can imagine their jaws dropped. Jesus takes hold of this man and heals him. This is one awkward dinner party and it's going to get more awkward. You see, what's happening in this passage is Jesus is exposing the real problem. And we see it a bit further in verse 5. He goes on and he says, If one of you has a child... Or for that matter, or, or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And there's still nothing to say. They remain silent, but nothing to say. You see, Jesus is exposing the fact that your problem is not with the Sabbath, it's what lies in your heart. It's your lack of compassion. It's your harm for forsaking and belittling other people. The issue is your heart. It's not about the Sabbath. It's that you're not using it properly. You're treating the Sabbath improperly. What, without going into a whole talk on what the Sabbath is and the day of rest and all that, what is the intent of the Sabbath? If we read from the, um, the Ten Commandments and then see it being played out, it's so that God's people will spend time in their week focusing on God. And you're taking that, Jesus is saying, and using it to try and trap me and manipulate this man and abuse him. Like, consider the sick man. This is a dinner party of the elites that they think they are, the elite anyway. There's no way this guy would be here. They've found him, they they bring him out and say, oh, just come with us, just come with us, because we're going to use you as an example. Nothing good's going to happen for you here. We're just going to use you so we can catch this person who ironically could actually help you, but we don't care about that. We want to just use you. They have a massive heart problem here. So Jesus exposes them further with a parable of the heart. This is getting even more awkward. Have a look with me at verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked their places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. So there's the setting. You're in a dinner party, everyone's all about status, you've got to get the best seat. And so they're jostling for the best seats in, in the room. Here we go, verse 8. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who, invite, 
who invited both of you will come, to, come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is addressing people who are looking for places of honour, who are putting themselves up compared to others. And he's addressing that heart problem. You've been to a wedding reception. What do you do when you get to a wedding reception? Usually you go and you have a look at the list wherever it is and you do two things. Who's on my table and how close is it to the front where the wedding uh, uh, couple is? And here we're seeing that they're jostling and fighting for places as if this is the important thing. And Jesus is saying it's not about chairs. It's about a heart the one that makes itself more important than others. Jesus isn't wanting you to be captivated by your honour and power in society, whatever that is and whatever little moment of status you want to have, but rather humbling yourself. It's a totally different way of thinking. Jesus is saying you're better to be at the bottom and get invited on the way to the top. Gee, this is an awkward party. (laughs) What do they do now? They ignore him and still jostle for the higher seats? Or do they go, great, Jesus has told us the way to get to the top is by going to the bottom first. So they all then fight for the bottom seats. (laughs) What do they do? Because Jesus isn't actually saying that this is some kind of self-help manual of manipulation to succeed, that you you go to the lower seats so that you can actually be better. So it's ultimately about being better in honour. No, 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 that would be a very disastrous misapplication of Jesus saying, you have a humble heart and God will give you the blessings as God determines and you treat others totally differently. I think the business world has latched onto this in a way that I've sat in conferences, uh, even before my uh, ministry life and, and other things, and the business world has discovered this thing called servant leadership. I don't even know if it's still relevant now, but it had gone through the business world where leaders should be servant-hearted and they talk about how if you lead by acting in a way that shows uh, everyone else that you're putting yourself lower, not trying to make yourself out to be the top all the time, it's better for your business and it works. That's not super surprising. It's the way God wants us to live and act is to think about others. But why would the business world think about picking up on that? because it gets you to make more money, because my business will work better. It's going to the bottom so I can get more. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. There's a different heart attitude that needs to take place. What would you do at this party when you've been hammered so badly like this? Would you leave? Jesus just slammed you time and time again. Well, they didn't. So Jesus keeps going, and this time he addresses the host and gives him some advice. In verse 12, he says to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they might invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
the next time you have a dinner party, why don't you not invite all these jokers and go and look for those who have got nothing to do for you, the poor, and invite them and have a concerned heart for them. This is not about who comes to a party, is it? It's about a heart that's concerned about other people and not what other people can do for you. Now, I've got, I've got uh, good friends and if we go out or we do something, go have a dinner, grab a coffee or go to a movie or whatever, they must say, oh, you pay, uh, I'll pay, you pay next time. Because I know that it doesn't really matter. I don't have to pay every single time my bit because we'll share it and, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll um, pay next time and we'll be fine. And I've got even friends who are so kind of generous, they don't even care that we even it out and I'm sure that they pay way more for me. So I'm kind of that person who I get more out of it. It's not because I'm greedy or anything, it's just they're kind of maybe nicer than me. But the reality is, Jesus is saying, when you just think about people as you getting something out of them, even your most loved relationships, you have a wicked, evil heart because you're just concerned about yourself. As I was thinking about this and writing this and going through and I went back on through and then I got a little bit later in thinking about the talk and I stopped and went, hang on a minute, you've just gone past the fact that you, I'm talking about me here, I'm standing in judgment of the Pharisees in this situation when actually often... I'm in that situation. I'm, why am I standing in judgment of how bad they are when I can easily do that? What are people to you? People to have compassion of? To when you get it wrong, repent of? Or does everyone exist for you? Is church to serve you? Things in your life, whether it's a church, whether it's in any other aspect of your life have changed and so it's all about me, so under every single circumstances I must change. Maybe this is just all a bit too radical, a bit too much. I don't want a heart change like this that Jesus is talking about, but I'm not willing to kick it all out. How about I do something for you? How about I help out at church in a way? There's lots to do. I'm sure Steamer, who looks after the kind of things of what we need to do, if I was to ask you right now, Steamer, is there anything someone could do? Would you have any areas or gaps that people could do things? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. You could go to Steamer and say, well, I'll do that. I won't worry about the heart, but I'll just go to Steamer and say, hey, what is it the church really needs? And I'll do that. But that's not what God's wanting. He wants our heart to be changed first. And in this situation, it's because there's an eternal perspective, isn't there? We care about people now and there is an eternity, the resurrection of the righteous as it's described. But then someone speaks up. Instead of leaving, someone speaks up. And I think this is really interesting. Verse 15, have a look with me. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I think good words, that's good. But just have a moment to think. Jesus has spent the whole time at this party slamming them. And this guy's almost like, oh yeah, 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 Jesus, but oh, the kingdom of God, it's all great, I'll be there, it's all fine. You've just been slammed. <laughs> You've got no idea what's going on. He's just, Jesus must be going, have you not been listening to what I've been saying? Where is your heart? Don't say these words, throw them out there as if, they're, they're going to be uh, the solution, even though it's exactly true, isn't it? <laughs> Blessed is the one who will eat in the, in the kingdom of God. That is where God wants us to be. 
And this kingdom where we eat leads us to Jesus continuing to talk about a banquet. And it's kind of where the kids went today a little bit and it's really helpful for us to consider our excuses. Jesus replied to this guy who said that thing about the kingdom of God and he's gone, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. God sends a gracious invitation. It's all good. It's all good to go. The party is ready. And the invitation is met with excuse after excuse after excuse on why I'm not quite ready to go. Verse 18, we see they began to make excuses and we've seen the three already uh, with the kids. I've just bought a field. I've got cattle. I've got, I've got land to look after. I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. So that's more important right now. I've got to do that. And then I just got married so I can't come. I've got a wife now. My priorities are slightly aligned differently. Good things applied with the wrong heart. Disastrous. And what happens? The owner of the house becomes angry. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out into the streets and the alleys of the towns, bring in everyone else, basically what he goes on to say. But why is the owner angry? Why is God angry when his invitation is rejected? Well, as has already been indicated and has gone through the Gospels uh, and, and we see, is that Jesus, a Jew, coming to fulfill all the requirements of God's people. He is the fulfillment of them. And when he offers it first to the Jews, they come up with excuses. I am here. Why are you rejecting me? And we could take further steps down, and while they are extra steps beyond what the passage is saying in, in one sense, is that if we think that we're here in this room, we're Christianified in some way, whatever that looks like for you, and you're okay, then the problem's the same, isn't it? Because I've given you an invitation and you've just kind of hung around, but you've never actually accepted it on the way that I've given it. Why is he angry? Because the excuses are actually hollow. I'm offering you a banquet to perfection. Eternity with no pain, suffering, of all time, and you're worried about a bit of grass. That's a really good excuse. It's probably not grass, it's a field that you can grow into some kind of produce, but you know what I mean. Same with the cattle. And even getting married, a good thing, I'd be very careful that I don't say something wrong here, it's good to be married and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not that he's saying, well, you shouldn't care about your wife. What he's saying is, your priorities are, while you love your wife, you lay down your life for your wife, you don't idolise your wife and put her in God's place. And so excuses that aren't hollow, uh, good things like being married, you've got to get your priorities right. And so the folly of ignoring this excuse is stark. And so, because it has been ignored, the offer goes out to many. Verse 22, 
Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. So go and tell others. Verse 23, the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Remember last week, the question was about the narrow door. The question was, how many will be saved? So it's not exactly really about that. But here we see Jesus saying, this isn't like some kind of um, elitist selection program. This is go out and compel those, the downtrodden, to come on in. But the consequences of being given the invitation and looking at it and clicking maybe on your Facebook invitation and just leaving it there are dire. Verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. You've been invited, so don't be ambivalent. Jesus doesn't prepare an invitation to a banquet by laying down tablecloths like in this, uh, in this illustration where you've got to lay out the tablecloths, get the, the banquet ready, you'd get the food ready, a tablecloth laid out, all the other china and everything's laid out. No, 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 he gets this banquet ready by laying down his very life. He goes to the cross in our place so that you can be with him. That is the preparation. He's heading there right now in the Luke story, isn't he? He's preparing the way through his death and resurrection for us. So we can't come back with excuses to such a lovingly prepared banquet because our heart is more concerned with other things. And so there's the story. Jesus going pretty hard on how your heart should be. Let me ask you, do you want God to have your heart? Or would you prefer to do deals with God? As I said before, I don't want to look at the heart. I kind of get it, but it's a little bit too full on, Michael. Can we just move beyond that a little bit and just go back to a little bit of performance? I can lead something in church even. I could memorize the Bible. That would be really great. We could do all sorts of things. But your performance is never going to be good enough. Right now... You know, many of you know, I, I'm, I like golf and I'm okay at it. But it's a little bit like at my golf club, at Tea Tree, you know, the, the team selected to play other teams. I, I put myself up. But Tiger Woods happens to turn up and be a member of the golf club and I say, no, 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 my performance will be good enough. <laughs> no. There's many more people just at the golf club that are better than me. But in Tiger Woods, if that's how ridiculous it would be. I'll get busy, God. But if you get busy, what's left behind is joy and worship. And it's replaced with actionable <laughs> items you can lay before God at the door to the banquet. But the door's closed and you'll smash your face into it and get a mark on your nose and it'll hurt. Examine your heart, brothers and sisters. And that's what I want us to do for a few moments. What is really going on in there? It's hard, isn't it? How do you see the world? Does everyone exist for you? Sometimes you act like that. Even your, your wife or your close relationships, uh, your friends, whoever. Does anger rise up towards your heart when your needs aren't met? Do you barter with God and you come on the weekends and you're good? Is busyness a constant excuse for you? Even though life is crazily busy and we are more busier than we ever are. Jesus is making a radical call for your heart. 
the heart is truly deceitful. That's why it's helpful when we have the Lord's Supper together and we acknowledge before God our sin. Let's do a reflection of this by asking four questions. Three of them I I stole from someone else and, and the fourth one I've come up with. And I want you to, you can write these down. Maybe this week you think about one of them or the four of them, but get in underneath the surface and the layers that you put on top of yourself to think about who you are. The first question is, do you have legitimate affection to God? Or are you more like the Pharisees? You see, I'm not saying by this, this is about how loud you sing. Although, God gave us music and praise to orient our minds to words that point to him and then to sing boldly and loudly and to praise uh, praise him which fosters that affection but it's not about those who sing the loudest and the most and are more public in it are the ones with the most affection it's not like a scale do you foster love towards god by constantly being thankful for what you have or do you focus on the negative of what you don't have I love Jen very much and she's been very gracious to me this year at a great cost to herself and I've realised that my affection to her to her grows when I articulate my thanks to her. That's not a surprise because the Bible kind of points that out and so does psychology actually but articulating thankfulness to God not just as a kind of thing we do at the dinner table. Do you have legitimate affection to the fact that he has died for you while you were... While are you his enemy? No, we can all reflect on that deeper. If you're a guy, you go, oh, hang on, we're getting into the loving thing and it's a bit too emotional. Well, there's your problem there. You've got to get beyond that. I'm not telling you if you're the type of person who's not going to be really emotive all the time, you've got to change your personality. I'm telling you that you've got to think about how do I genuinely develop my affection towards a God who has given me everything? Secondly, how do you spend your money? This is not the, ah, we're going to get the call to give more to church in a talk today or anything like that. This is about the fact that we live and we need to use money. And so if we're giving our whole light to God and our hearts directed towards him, we've got to consider that is aligned with Jesus being number one. Do I need these things and spend my money that way or are those needs often i just say need but it's actually want i found that that's what i've been doing recently and uh, one of my brothers pointed that out to me uh in a really uh, uh clever way as a subtle comment and i thought about it yeah i said i needed that and i didn't actually need that at all but it goes beyond that are we cheerful in the way we give do we actually not just our money but what that means and what we use it for how do you spend your money do you have a problem with greed And that's really eating away at your heart. You just need a certain level of comfort. If you get there, you'll be okay, but you'll get there and then it'll move. How do you spend your money? Always reflect upon that question. Thirdly, how do you treat people? How do you treat others? Those brothers and sisters with us here and others who love Jesus, and how do you treat people who you don't know well? How horrible were they in the way they treated that swollen man? Our hearts can be lined up by how we treat people. Sometimes it's those closest to us. In, in our moments 
of being away from the public eye where the heart might spread out to the surface because no one else knows and we treat them really badly. Or it might be that we're just distant and don't care about others because we, we care more about ourselves. How do you generally treat and think about people? Is it, oh, I do do a lot of things for other people, but in the end, I'm doing it a little bit for my own benefit? When have you last done something knowing it's going to be at a great cost to you? Lastly, this is the one I was uh, reflecting on and I threw in there today. How concerned are you about your identity? The Pharisees were, weren't they? And it affected their heart massively. I've had to think about this one a lot. Um, uh, those of you who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I came back from a long break uh, and I came back three Sunday, two Sundays ago other than today and I shared with you that what I realised on that break is that I actually have and I've been diagnosed with anxiety and it's been a struggle. As I thought about sharing that and opening up with you about that, I realised I'm thinking about what are they going to think about me? I'm the pastor. They're going to think, um, I shouldn't, that shouldn't happen to me. I'm, I've got, I've, I can't do these things. And then they'll probably think about, well, that's why you've done this and that's why you've done that and it was all wrong and here's the problem and this shouldn't happen to the pastor. And I was comparing myself. And I'm sharing this with you now because this is how I want you to think about it in your life, self-examine for yourself and hopefully it's helpful for you. Jen brings it up often. It's a phrase that she's, uh, in a book she's read and it points out, and I think it's so true, that comparison is the thief of joy and it steals your heart. And God wants us to just direct our hearts to him. I realised that I can be very much on many layers of not worrying about what other people think and I don't generally when I really push down in certain situations, I can. I may have said to you at some point over the years, when we started and planted to grow, one of my fears was, yeah, yeah, Sarah remembers it, one of my fears was, what if we were the first Trinity plant that failed? A part of that was reasonable thought to have, I think, are we doing the right thing? Uh, and I'm convinced that it was a great, joyous thing to do, as hard as it can be, but there was a bigger layer under there that I haven't, haven't exposed enough of is because I wanted my peers, the other centre pastors and others, to actually see me as successful like them. Whatever that means to them, it's nonsense. It's a heart problem. I think God is calling you today to do self-examination of your heart like that. Don't overlook painful self-examination. And if you're not a Christian, you're not sure where you are with God, maybe today's the day when you're saying, hey, I want you to actually think about me and to consider, should I turn to you and trust in you? See, how do you know if you've given your heart to God? This is something that um, I heard this week as well, and I think it's really helpful to think. It's the moment when you realise, yeah, actually, 
I am, I have turned away from God. I, I am sinful. I, I do reject him. Whatever word you want to use, I am not perfect. I sin. I'm wicked. I, whatever you want to, however you want to say it, I have a big problem because that's the human condition. But in that darkest moment of realizing how bad it is, you see Jesus fixes it all. As in Romans chapter 5, as we've already read, and I want us to go there, we see, for while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You may never have realized, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you're his enemy, and that's the moment where he dies for you, so you can actually have life with him for all eternity and not be an enemy anymore. And all you need to do today is to see that and to trust in him. And everything else, you figure it all out and you work out your heart, but it's not about your performance. It's about he's done it all for you. And you can do that today. And brothers and sisters, all of us who say, I love Jesus, don't ever think that your heart is fine. It's renewed in Christ, but we're this side of heaven. God loves it when we examine ourselves. Don't let your heart be captivated by anything other than Jesus. Because if you do, you'll end up with your face in a wire door. But it'll be far worse. Because it'll never be opened again. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We are, as we've already done today, and we come back before you and we ask that you will turn our hearts upside down, coming back to Jesus. Help us, by your Spirit, to examine our hearts. And anyone in this room today, even maybe for the first time, come to you and trust in what you've done for us. If that is the case, with joy as your community, we'd love to love and encourage and support each other and anyone for the first time. Help us to do that well when we get it wrong. Love each other, graciously forgive each other, apologise to each other when our hearts have caused pain amongst us. Transform our hearts, God. Help us trust in you. Help us to live our life for you. Amen.